0: Studying food is the study of culture, and talking about culture is storytelling in many forms. Julia Skinner is a food storyteller. It's on Tip of the Tongue. For the time, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Julia Skinner, founder of Root and Fermenter, food historian, educator, and storyteller. Welcome, Julia. I'm happy to have the opportunity to chat. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, before we start talking about any of the things that you're doing now, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to food?
1: Yeah, so I've always been interested in in food my whole life and I, you know, have cooked for fun and all of that cooked with family growing up and once I was an adult, I started a garden and had, you know, had to start putting food up. My garden would produce all of this produce at once and I had had to have somewhere for it to go. So I started making pickles and sauerkraut and all of these things. And then I moved on to continuing to cook food kind of on my own, but I didn't do a lot of professional work with it for a while. I had worked in kitchens and stuff when I was younger. And then I Got a PhD in library science, did all these things, and then came back to food in 2018 as my full-time role again.
0: And, and so did you just have an idea that you wanted to pursue, or did you just miss it?
1: Or how how did you say, okay, I'm going to come back to food? Well, it was it was partially that I missed kind of the excitement of being able to engage with it regularly as an intellectual activity as well as a hands-on one. And I, so I had left a job. I was working as a rare books curator and I left that job and kind of was unemployed and wondering what I was going to do next. Like I had, you know, I, I quit there and I was like, okay, well like now what? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I realized this was maybe the only opportunity I'd ever have in my life to really figure out what it was I most wanted to do and try that Mm -hmm. because I didn't, you know, I wasn't jumping from job to job. So I had that moment to pause. And what I most wanted to do was work with food. And so I was like, well, let's try it and see. I can always go back to libraries again if I need to.
0: And so how did you get into libraries even?
1: So, I mean, (laughs) just like with food, I've always loved libraries. Um, And I, I had a friend who, when I was trying to figure out you know, what I might do for grad school and kind of, you know, what path I wanted to take. One of my friends was like, oh, you'd be a great librarian. And I was like, really? I was like, I don't know about that. Um, but I started looking into it and I, I went to library science school and I focused also on book history and book art while I was doing that. So I kind of got more into the special collection side of things. Absolutely loved it. Ended up getting a PhD where I did a lot of like historical focused research but in library spaces and loved that and so always stuck with this kind of historical theme and yeah i you know i i love working with libraries and i i love i love doing that but i, I like working with food just a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that i love
0: to do uh, that that food lets you do Um, especially with other people who um, have sort of an academic bent about them is to talk about food in a way that most people don't. Most people just talk about what it tastes like or where this maybe came from or some of the roots of some of the food, or they just say, I like it or I don't like it. And to me, the idea of being able to talk about how it fits into the culture, how it reflects the way people think and the way they interact. And all of that is so much more fun to talk about than the actual food, if you understand what I mean. yeah. Um, I don't think I could ever be a chef because of that, because the actual flavor of the food, not that it's not important to me and I want my food to taste good, but the flavor of the food is not quite as interesting to me as how it reflects culture. So I get how what you're talking mm-hmm. about, how um, you would be able to apply all of the ideas of library science and the way it's organized and all about books
1: and writing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and apply it to food. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what I find appealing about both of them is you know, like library and information science, everything touches on information, right? Information interacts with every single thing we're doing. Well, so does food. So we have these two things that really connect to everything I'm going to do at whatever point in my day. Right. And maybe, you know, maybe that's the thing that really undergirds why I like both of them.
0: So I'm going to digress here for a moment and we're going to get back to you. But, you know, We've known each other for a while, and I remember when you were in the library, <laughs> you knew about our library, and our mm-hmm. library is taking this big, giant step so that we are now about to open, we're having an official opening in October, about to open our research center in partnership with Nunez Community College here in Louisiana, We have the second floor of their library, their archival vaults. We have all of that. Um, And it's going to uh, be open to the public. And we have hmm, 40,000 volumes or so and thousands of menus and wonderful archival material. And we're integrating our actual artifact collection into the cataloging system so that if you want to study beer bottles or beer, let's say Mm -hmm. you can can read books about beer. You can look at advertisements about beer. You can look at old beer bottle catalogs and then actually put your hands on the old beer bottles so that you have this kind of complete ability to do your research. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very excited about that. I think it's going to be great.
1: No, that sounds wonderful. And, you know, having worked with both, you know, books and museum artifacts and all of it, I mean, people get such different things out of each of those kinds of interactions, which is really exciting.
0: Yes. And it allows you to think about organization in a way Mm -hmm. that doesn't divide things up quite so neatly into types of things. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's about yeah. the subject as opposed to the th- type of thing that carries the information,
1: and that's yeah. a lot more fun yeah. and a lot a lot of challenges for the the cataloging of it too oh, that's with the, true. Existing, <laughs> the existing catalog <laughs> standards we have. Ah, <laughs> oh, goodness!
0: Well, so I'm also interested in your path to fermentation. Yeah,
1: how did that happen? So. Fermentation, I, you know, I was looking to preserve food. um, And like a lot of people, I started with sauerkraut. Um, I had, you know, I was growing all of this food in my garden. I, I needed to preserve it. And a friend taught me how to make sauerkraut. And the way that she taught me was rather than in a big crock, which I didn't have, was just to make it in jars. And so I started doing that. And it wasn't until later that I started making larger batches that I would make the big crocks of it. So that was kind of the first thing. And then, I mean, it just blossomed from there. I started making yogurt. I started experimenting with other fermented vegetables. I started making mead. About four years ago or so, I started making koji-based things. I I found koji really intimidating for a long time, as I think a lot of people do, even though it's very fun and safe to work with. It just, you know, to, to our Western fermentation traditions maybe feels a little foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I'm actually writing a miso recipe right now, today, actually, <laughs> when, when we get off of, <laughs> off of this conversation, I will be back in my kitchen working on miso. And yes, yeah, so it's, it's kind of just blossomed into this whole thing and it's, you know, I've learned so much and I've, I just always find a new fun rabbit hole to jump down.
0: Yeah. I find fermentation really, really interesting. Although I must say that it's a challenge here in, in the deep South, Mm -hmm. um, because the, the, the temperature is so hot and the Mm -hmm. dampness is so extreme that, um, it it's hard. I think it's harder than in more in colder places or drier places than, than it is here.
1: Well, I think every, you know, every client climate just asks us to adapt to, um, you know, our fermentation practice to it. So, I mean, I have a lot of things I make seasonally here. I'm more likely to make fish sauce or soy sauce or longer aged miso pastes in the winter when it's colder and the fermentation happens more slowly. Mm -hmm. This time of year, if I want to make, you know, ferment a bunch of peppers and make hot sauce, this is a great time to do it because it doesn't, right. you know, it doesn't matter if they get mushy because they're getting blended up anyways. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it does. I mean, it's, you know, and I have friends who live very far north who are just like, I have trouble fermenting anything in the winter because it's too cold. And okay. so yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see how we have to adapt depending on, on location. I make a lot
0: of vinegars. And those I feel really confident doing because I've just always done vinegar. Um, mm-hmm. But fermentation is one of those things that I feel like, first of all, it takes a lot of space. <laughs> and, and then I feel like because it takes so much space, you have these problems with cross contamination and all kinds of messes. It's my, that's my that that's my sort of barrier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I I hear a lot of concerns about that. I have been fermenting all kinds of different things next to each other, you know, for over a decade and haven't really encountered problems with things cross-contaminating. You know, if I if I don't keep an eye on a ferment properly, like let's say I'm making sauerkraut and I don't make sure the brine is over the top, it might mold, but that's not cross-contamination yeah, yeah i mean they're the microbes know what they're doing like they, we, they, <laughs> they uh they do a good job like most of the time sometimes they surprise you but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean i have all of my stuff is on this one baker's rack in my kitchen and yeah, you know, i've got oh, i try trying i can't really count it from here probably like 40 or 50 things fermenting on there right now and all different kinds of projects so and they, you know, they mostly turn out good. So it's Yeah, you know,
0: yeah. No, I know. Yeah. I think it's great. And so finally, I really want to talk to you about using food in
1: storytelling. So how did you develop that? So, you know, that was kind of a byproduct of doing fermentation and thinking about, you know, how we can connect to place with our food. It very much has started as a, kind of an exploration of wild fermentation and the ways that the wild microbes speak to a place you know the sauerkraut I make at my house if you make sauerkraut at your house even if we make them the same way like they may not taste quite the same sure um and so and I've started with that and I was like, well, but what if I use, you know, plants that I forage from my yard or I use, you know, a vinegar that I made here and I put these plants in it and then I put in something from the farm down the street or, you know, on and on and on. Um, and so it very much started as a storytelling through, through a desire to connect to place. So I had, I was already experimenting with that. And then in 2018, I had a bunch of, you know, Losses of family and friends rather unexpectedly and suddenly and actually had the opportunity to take some of the vegetable and fruit scraps from the last meals that I made for a couple of these folks who passed and turned them into these wild fermented foods that made me feel very connected. So it was a human connection as well as a place connection, which was really powerful. And now I'm starting to think a bit more about how we can use these different things to actually tell tell stories that are, you know, like connect to fictional stories, connect to storytelling when we think of the word storytelling. So there was a project that I did a few years ago with a person called the Wondersmith. And what we did together was um, they made a, a bread and I made this mead and we made them so that each of them would taste like what we imagined the island of Atlantis tastes like. <laughs> it was like this totally just wild experiment, but it was really fun. The meat actually turned out really well. <laughs> and so it's, yeah, it, it's going a lot of directions, but it's something I feel like is very actively evolving right now.
0: And so how do you share, I mean, I understand how you share your story, but how do you share with other people the, the ways to tell, to use food to tell
1: stories. So I actually, and I think at some point, I'm going to add more depth to this class, but a couple of years ago, I actually made a class to help people think about that. So to help them say like, okay, if you're trying to connect to a place or a memory or a person, you know, what foods can we gather that build that connection? What wild fermentation practices can we engage in Are there certain cultural traditions that maybe you can pull from as you're selecting which food to make? Um, All of these different things. And so it's much more about, you know, building our personal narratives and thinking critically about what in our, both in our environment and our personal and family histories might might be a part of that story.
0: I could see using that really for sort of something after a funeral where people Mm -hmm. bring food, but often what you bring is some traditional thing. You know, I always bring a roast ham or I Mm -hmm. always bring a turkey or I always bring a pasta salad or whatever it is. Yeah. And so it has nothing to do with the person who died. It's all about what you bring. And often it's, you know, 30 cakes are there. (laughs) Um, And, I think it would be very interesting to sort of ask people to bring something that is part of the story of the, the deceased and yeah. then be able to share, I brought this because, and um, whether it's fermented or not, it could mm-hmm. simply be, my favorite time with so-and-so is when we ate cotton candy at the uh, the state fair or something. Yeah you make cotton candy, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you get to tell those stories and then it's a way to share it with other people, not just telling it, mm-hmm. but actually consuming the food together at the same time. I think that would be a nice kind of use of food as a storytelling um, yeah. uh, exercise that yeah. could also
1: be very healing. Yeah. And I love that too, because you, you know, what you brought up like as a reminder that it doesn't have to be a complicated you know drawn out thing to make these foods like I had at my my friend Justin when he passed unexpectedly I was given the carrots from his garden which were the basis of one of those vinegars but I was given them actually at the memorial service and so I was just walking around the memorial with these carrots that had these giant fronds and people kept coming up and they were like I I was just like standing there, you know, snacking on the carrot fronds. And so people kept coming up and being like, I didn't know you could do that. And I was like, yeah, Justin grew these carrots. These are the last carrots that he grew here, have a carrot frond. And so like just these carrot fronds ended up being this really incredible bonding thing for me with all of these other people in his life. So an example of what you're talking about in action.
0: And also if you didn't know everyone, because mm-hmm. you don't you often don't know the people in other parts of that that person's life it gave you a way to have something to talk about people weren't walking up to you and saying oh how did you know him they're mm-hmm. just looking at the carrots
1: yeah and they're just like wow
0: <laughs> it just makes it much more approachable and mm-hmm. it's not so much like uh, uh this barrier between people because you don't know each other and how yeah. am I gonna ask this person and whatever yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that that's that's really amazing that somebody brought you the carrots from his garden that's exciting yeah. yeah yeah
1: yeah it was they they had the memorial like right in the space that he lived and so they just went and pulled them up out of the garden you know about 50 feet away and walked them over to me it was,
0: very cool. That is very, very cool. Yeah. And so how did you decide to start Root?
1: So Root was when I, when I had you know, left that career in libraries or at least full time, I still have my toes dipped in that field, but, um, and I had this kind of question about what do I most want to do? Root was what came to mind. You know, I wanted to continue to do education sort of things. I wanted to help people think about food in different ways. I wanted to do deep dives into history and it's changed exactly how it looks over time. Um, It started out being much more like I was doing more historical consulting kind of stuff and more traditional historical writing in the sense that I was like writing about here's the history of this dish or something. Mm -hmm. And now, Now kind of the newsletter writing I do is much more playful and much more out there. Um, And I really enjoy, I I enjoy that and I enjoy teaching the classes. So I mostly do online classes now, but I do occasionally do them in person. Um, Yeah, and it's it's just been, very fun to watch it grow and to have people be interested in this like crazy stuff that I'm interested in. too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is an amazing thing when you think oh goodness I'm going to share this but who knows who's going to look at it yeah. and then you find that many many
1: people are really yeah interested. yeah it's so vulnerable you're just like oh, I love this Here's, here it is please be gentle. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes. And I I will say that, that, that sense of vulnerability makes me a little bit more gentle in approaching other people's projects so that even, even then, you know, you try to remember what you feel like when, Mm -hmm. uh, when you're presenting something for people to to look at.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And no, it definitely helps with the, the empathy on, on that one. Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so what are you working on now? And what, what little areas do you think you're going to go that you hadn't actually ever thought of going before?
1: So my latest book, Our Fermented Lives, comes out in just a couple months. And so that that is open for pre-orders and we are kind of ramping up thinking about book tour and other events that might happen with that so that's one of the big things that's happening right now uh, i am i'm also going to be teaching some classes on food storytelling some of the stuff that you and i talked about and i want i want to expand that i don't know how exactly expanding that might look but i think it would be a fun rabbit hole to keep going down. Mm-hmm. Um I've also been really I so I have my weekly newsletter where I do interviews, um the interview with you that I did and <laughs> <laughs> interviews with, you know, people all around the world thinking about how food intersects with their work even if they're not culinary professionals and So that has been really good writing in the newsletter with my own thoughts and kind of letting myself be more expansive in how I think about food and how I write about food. I've been doing a lot of connecting my food writing to like nature writing and writing about wild plants. Um, So I feel like I'm at this point where I'm exploring a few different rabbit holes Mm -hmm. and we'll see. We'll see where they go. (laughs) And also
0: painting. Your painting is just really a wonderful adjunct to the stories that you tell. And those are really interesting. And I think it's interesting to connect the sort of occult things that you are interested in, Mm -hmm. whether it's actual or historical and the connection to food and foraging and herbs and um, and what is there for that and and then the the pictorial part that you add to it then when you make a painting and have objects and photographs and everything all mixed together um mm-hmm. i i think that that is also a really interesting part of storytelling because it's not only words it's it's a visual thing, and of mm-hmm. course, if it were done at the table when
1: you could eat it too, then yeah, it would just be even better. Even better, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting to do. You know, I've done visual art. I mean, since you know, since I could hold a pencil, basically, um, I've always drawn. I've always painted, but thinking about myself as a writer and myself as an artist have always felt like distinct and separate things. And so it's been very interesting to combine them and see how I can really, yeah, like you said, do more storytelling using the combination of those formats and, you know, seeing how the picture can convey something that maybe the words can't or vice versa. It's been, it's been a very interesting shift in how I think about my work to have those two
0: interconnected. So do you think of, of your work as something that is, is like leading to something so that you can say when I'm not here anymore, this is what I, what I presented, or this Mm -hmm. is what I contributed or whatever way you might think about it, or are you kind of just trying to live an interesting life?
1: (laughs) I think it's a little bit of both, you know, I've been thinking this root I founded four years ago. And so I've started to think about, you know, what have I built here? What might the legacy of this business be, you know, years and years from now when I'm um, when I'm no longer around or when it's no longer around. But I, you know, and I I think the goals of a business like Root are so different than, you know, like I don't, I'm not gonna have like 20 franchises or something because that just isn't how that kind of business is. And so I think instead, it's more in benchmarks, like how I want to be able to educate people, I want to be able to leave meaningful writing, I want to be able to share ideas with people that help them think in new ways about their food, help them get curious, like the whole point of our fermented lives is to help people get excited and curious about this stuff. And, you know, and to want to use that book as a building block for their own work. And so I think the legacy that myself and Root would want to leave would be a legacy of conversation and building and not just a legacy of here's the stuff I did.
0: Right, right. Do you see Root ever being
1: more than you? So I have, I do actually have one employee who is absolutely amazing and she is my assistant who handles all of the like spreadsheet kind of stuff that makes me want to curl up into a ball. (laughs) Um, I have considered maybe at some point branching out the educational component of it and having other instructors who might teach classes, the classes I've built for in-person teaching, teach them in different places. Or maybe do something with food tours or something. I could, there's a lot of directions it could go. So the short answer is yes. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how that would look yet. Yeah. Yeah, well,
0: there's probably lots of time for it to evolve. So mm-hmm. you don't have to make that decision. And some of it, you may find some collaborators that you begin to work with and say, oh, we should always work together or mm-hmm. have a, a place where in the Venn diagram, we overlap and then we still do our other things, but this place here that we overlap is going to be something that we continue. So there's all of those um, those possibilities. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and with that, I think, you know, more of what I do is that sort of collaborative work rather than a traditional, like me at the top employees underneath sort of thing. So I, I teach with fermentation school, which is an online women-led fermentation school. (laughs) and and I teach classes with different community members that I have regular relationships with. And I do, you know, research collaborations. Like I do, I do that sort of collaborative work, but not, not as, as much employees. Right, right.
0: So... I think it's really um, really interesting to me. And to me, you are sort of the embodiment of one of the ways that you can find your own way within working in food. Um, I mean, there are many traditional things right now. People can teach in food studies programs and other kinds of food-related programs at universities and community colleges. And you you can be a chef, you can work in the food industry, you can work in other kinds of food-related things just to be a food writer or something that's more traditional. But I don't think that that's the only way. And I, I do think that all of the different paths that you've taken can show people how much diversity there is within the choices that you have. And that there are other like-minded people, especially since we have the a, a pathway to the whole world now through the internet, you don't have to say, oh, my community only has four other people that might be interested in this. You can say, I have the world to look mm-hmm. at. And we do happen to be fortunate that we speak English and that so many people speak English mm-hmm. that... Um, that that allows us to um, to reach the world, mm-hmm. um, which is very very interesting because it connects us and it's um, teaches us about other things too. So
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that you know you're another good example of you know somebody who's built built this career in in these spaces that is you know unique to you, and you're doing doing all of these wonderful things to share food resources and ideas with people. And, you know, I think you brought up a good point about the different ways that that can look that that can go in so many directions. You know, we can teach in food studies programs. I'm teaching a class right now in a library science program on food information, which is partially like, how do we create library collections around food? And then also how do we write about food? And so that's been a really fun course to teach. Um, you know i I mean, i I do. I do this work in so many different ways and part of that is because it kind of helps me flex all these mental muscles and you know another nice byproduct of it is it makes it so I can have the freedom of doing all this freelancing and stuff but still have some security Mm -hmm. because I'm not relying on just one thing to Mm -hmm. be my only resource for income and all of that Um, yeah. It's, it's very, it's very fun. And it's fun to see the different ways that that evolves over time. Like I would not have expected to be doing writing coaching along with writing when I, you know, started out writing years and years and years ago.
0: Right. Right. And I really am interested in using food for critical thinking mm-hmm. because, you know, when you ask people, did you like that? Or what did you like about that? meaning something that they've just tasted, they usually just say, oh, it tastes good, or it's yummy, or they have some very sort of generalized way Mm -hmm. of describing it. And yet we teach children words that allow them to describe the visual world. We give them shapes. Every shape Mm -hmm. has a name and they can know a square and they know a triangle and the rectangle and a circle and all of that. They know the colors. They have this baseline of colors, even though their colors in between those colors, mm-hmm. they at least have these baselines of colors. And so they can describe it's far away. It's close. They, they learn mm-hmm. that vocabulary. They almost learn no words to describe food. And we don't teach those words. Mm-hmm. Um, so they aren't able to make an analysis because they actually don't have the vocabulary to do it and i think that since everyone is eating it is a really great way to begin to have a conversation at the table that involves critical thinking Mm
1: -hmm. this is
0: this is too even if it's as simple as this is too hot or -hmm. this is too cold or doesn't tastes right in my mouth it coats Mm -hmm. the inside of my palate or my tongue and I can't taste as well and just Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things that they could say but we don't give them the vocabulary and that's something that's one of my pet peeves Mm -hmm. that we should be using food because everyone is eating not everyone goes to a a museum to see paintings Mm -hmm. not everyone gets some of these opportunities But if you're alive, you're eating. And I think that it would be just the most natural thing to use that as a way to teach critical thinking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, you know, I think it's interesting too, because the ways that we describe food are so familial and culturally situated. So there is an essay in the book Koji Alchemy that Kirsten Shockey wrote that talks about like, you know, stinky cheeses and stinky tofu and how one culture might see the others being having this big yuck factor, but they're actually very similar when you get down to flavor and texture and all of these things. And so I think, you know, that speaks to this point of not only thinking about how we're describing them, but then, maybe using it to bridge those divides as well yes
0: yes so that people see the similarities instead of the differences Mm -hmm. yes and of course if you describe it in a way that it's like this as opposed to i hate that because it's different Mm -hmm. and that's it you just put up the barrier then you're never going to get you're never going to get anywhere (laughs)
1: yeah that's true Uh.
0: Well, thank you so much, Julia. It's been delightful having this discussion. I love that we just kind of went all over the map. Yeah. Uh, Good to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.